Once again, we're deeply honored that you're watching our program. And as we always do at the beginning of the program, we want to invite all of our friends and the television audience to worship with us at the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ, 2201 Rainbow Drive in Gadsden. Our Bible study is at 9.30 this morning, our worship hour at 10.30, and our evening worship hour is at 6 o'clock p.m. We've really had some... Good things happening at Rainbow lately. Our crowds have been excellent. Uh, there's been a great response to the gospel and uh, just a whole lot of good things going on. We're involved at Rainbow Drive in a lot of mission work and World Bible School and just doing a lot of things for the Lord. And I do believe that Rainbow Drive is a great congregation of the Lord's people. And if you're looking for a church where they just practice the, the Christianity the way the Bible teaches Christianity and seek to have authority for everything we practice religiously from the Bible and you're looking for a wonderful group of people who will love you, who will care about you, and you want to be a part of that family, then come with us and worship with us at the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ. Hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached, and I feel certain if you hear it preached and you're honest and sincere that you'll be obedient to the gospel, and the Lord then can add you to the church that we read about in the New Testament, and you can become a part of the family that we have at Rainbow Drive. But we do have some wonderful people. Congregation is totally at peace. There's great love in Rainbow Drive. We've got a Wonderful eldership, great deacons, our missionary, Steve uh, Worley, is doing a great work in Nigeria. We've got an outstanding youth minister and Philip Brooks. And just think we've got a whole lot going for us. And you hope and pray that if you're looking for a congregation, that you'll consider Rainbow Drive. And if you're not a member of the Lord's Church, that you'll come and visit with us and observe what we do and listen as the gospel is preached. And certainly let us uh, befriend you and let you know how much we care about you and how much we appreciate you and how concerned we are that for your soul and for our soul. But I'll open your Bibles with me, if you will, to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. I want us to read just 14, I mean, four, this few verses together, the ninth uh, verse through the 14th verse, and that'll be our text for this morning. Where John the Apostle writing, saying, That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. And as the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld the, Lord, the glory and the, of the Father, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Our God, friends and brethren, is a God of miracles. He's a God that could speak this universe into existence. He's a God that could take from the dust of the ground and create the first man, Adam. He's a God that could take from uh, Adam's rib and create the first woman, Eve. He's a God that could part the Red Sea, that could feed the Israelites from manna from heaven. He's a God that could uh, do whatever he chose to do. He's a God that could calm the winds and the seas. And any miracle that you can think of, God is simply not limited in any area. He's an omnipotent and omniscient God. And he can certainly perform every miracle imaginable. To think of a God that we worship, who can speak this universe into existence, and to think of his magnificence and his power and his greatness and his majesty, certainly it's humbling to know that this kind of a God cares for us. This kind of a God loves us. We have a God that performed many, many miracles, and we have a marvelous and wonderful God. But friends and brethren, God never performed a greater miracle and the miracle we read about in the 14th verse of our text for this morning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. You know, God is a God, friends and brethren, who cannot lie. Paul said in Titus 1 and 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. 
Whenever God makes a promise, he always fulfills that promise without fail. But now, since God is not uh, relegated to time, not restricted to time, Peter says in 2 Peter 3 and 8 that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, we're not to understand Peter's words to mean that after a thousand years, the Lord turns over a calendar, and that's another day in his life. What Peter is saying is, is the Lord just simply is not limited to time. Time has no meaning in God's eyes. God was here in the beginning, as far back as your mind can go, billions of years ago, and God will be here billions of years from now. And time simply is not, uh, is not something that he is restricted by, or something that he's limited by, or something that he's relegated by. Time really has no meaning in God's eyes. Well, because of this fact, God, in our eyes, seems to often to tarry concerning his promises, and men begin to doubt that God is going to keep his promises. Yet there's never been a promise made by God, friends and brethren, that he hasn't kept. In the long ago, he told the Israelites that if they were not faithful to him, that they would have to suffer the consequences. Centuries went by, the Israelites being unfaithful. And I'm certain there were many Israelites who must have thought, well, God just simply isn't going to keep his promise. He said that we would pay the consequences if we weren't faithful. The Israelites haven't been faithful for centuries, and what consequences are we paying? But when the right time was time came, God kept his promise, and the Israelites were taken into Egyptian bondage. God, through Noah, preached the necessity to the antediluvian people of turning to him getting their lives straightened out. He pointed out that a flood, that a flood was going to come and it was going to consume all of the people of that day who rejected him. Well, God, Noah preached, and God threw Noah, if you will, for some 120 years. Well, certainly during that 120 years, those people must have thought God is simply not going to send a flood. We haven't even seen any rain, much less a flood. And they probably laughed at God's promise and ridiculed God's promise and mocked God's promise. But after the 120 years, when the time was right, when God saw that it was time to fulfill his promise, the floods came, and all those people in the antediluvian age were destroyed, separated from God because of their disobedience unto God. When it came to Abraham and Sarah, God promised Abraham and Sarah a son, and that through that son, Abraham would be the father of a great nation, the father of so many people. While Abraham was... A hundred years old and Sarah in her 90s and God still had not blessed that union with the son. Now I'm certain that Abraham and Sarah must have both thought, well, God just simply is not going to keep his promises. He's not going to do as he said he was going to do. He said that he would bless our union with the son and that Abraham would be the father of a great nation and Abraham's a hundred years old, Sarah's in her 90s and God hasn't fulfilled his promise. But when the time was right, God fulfilled his promise. And he blessed Abraham and Sarah with the son Isaac. And just as he said, Abraham, through Isaac his son, became the father of a great nation. Now, God promised almost from the very beginning that a Savior would come into the world. All the way back to Genesis, the third chapter, the 15th verse, when he said the seed would bruise the heel of the serpent. He was prophesying and telling us that a Savior was going to come into the world, inform us that a Savior was going to come into the world. The Old Testament predicted and prophesied that the Messiah would come. Well, thousands of years went by, and there was no Messiah. And certainly the people must have thought, God is not going to keep his promise. We're not going to get a Messiah. He's not going to send a Messiah. There is no Savior coming. But when, as Paul says in Galatians 4 and 4, 4 and 4, and the fullness of time, when the time was right, 
God sent forth his son. He kept his promise, sent his, the Savior into the world. Now God has told you and me that a judgment is coming. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, the 27th verse, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. Acts 17, uh, verse uh, 30 and 31, he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by him whom he hath ordained and hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Second Thessalonians, first chapter, verses 7 through 9, to all you who are troubled. Rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that the Lord is going to descend with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead that are in Christ are going to rise first, and be lifted, and we're all going to be lifted in the air to meet the Lord in the air. The Bible tells us place after place in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is going to come to judge the living and the dead come for the second time to claim his own and to separate those who have rejected him from him for a never-ending eternity. Well, now almost 2,000 years have gone by since the Lord made those promises to us in the New Testament. And many people are saying, just as they said shortly after the lifetime of the Lord, where, is his, where is, are his promises? When is he going to keep these promises? Where are the signs of his coming? When is he going to come? He's been here almost, the, the promise has been made almost 2,000 years ago and the Lord hasn't come. And evidently, he's not going to come. Well, now, friends and brethren, rest assured that Jesus Christ is going to come. Rest assured that he's going to keep his promise. Rest assured that he's going to, that, that a judgment is near. And certainly, I don't know how near. If it's a thousand years from now, that's still near. And that's almost meaningless in God's sight. One thing is for certain, when you breathe your last breath and I breathe my last breath, as far as we're concerned, the judgment is here. Because we will have... All opportunities to get right with God, all opportunities to accept Jesus Christ will have passed, and we will go into eternity based on the life that we have lived, and we will be judged according to the life that we have lived. So the judgment is going to come, and it's not too far off for any of us when you think of talking about time in the relative sense. We think of three score and ten years as such a long period of time, the average Lifetime is some three score and ten, some 70 years of age, maybe a little bit longer than that now, maybe a little bit closer to 80. But what does it mean when you compare it to billions of years? What does it mean when you compare it to the timeless, eternal God who created us? We're here for such a short period of time. So 80 years is nothing in God's sight. A thousand years is nothing in God's sight. So whether the judgment comes tomorrow, whether it comes today, whether it comes a thousand years from now, the judgment is very close, friends and brethren. The final judgment, when the earth and all things therein are going to be burned up, and Jesus is going to come and judge the entire world and claim his own, as I've already stated, send those who have rejected him to perdition for that never-ending eternity. Now, that's going to happen. I do hope and I do pray that every single one of us understands and believes that. But now, this great God of miracles, this great God that performed all the miracles that we read about in this holy and inspired volume. The greatest miracle of all, as far as I'm concerned and have already pointed out, is the 14th verse of our text for this morning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Word, friends and brethren, is Jesus Christ, the second person in the Godhead, he that was with Jehovah God in the beginning, he that was without creation, he that was himself the Creator, 
created all things. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1 and 16. That he is the creator of all things, whether they be visible or invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, whether they be in heaven or on earth, whether they be principalities or powers or thrones or dominions. He is the creator of all things. He was before all things. And all things do consist because of him. Jesus Christ that created this universe. Jesus Christ that created everything that we see around about us. Jesus Christ that created the moon and the stars and the sun. Jesus Christ, your creator and my creator. Jesus Christ with God in his heavenly state in the beginning divested himself of that heavenly power, took the form of a human being, came into the world a little lower than the angels, angels to die for you and for me. There, friends and brethren, is the greatest miracle God ever performed. There is the greatest and most meaningful and most significant miracle that we read about in the Bible. In the final analysis, that is the only really, ultimately important miracle. Because if Jesus Christ hadn't come into the world, you would be in your sins and I would be in my sins. Everything else that we read about in the Bible would be meaningless if it wouldn't be for the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Now, there's many reasons that Jesus came into the world. Somebody once said that Jesus came into the world to bring God down to man and to lift man up to God. Well, certainly there's much truth in that. Jesus, friends and brethren, as Paul says in Colossians 1 and 15, was the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus, as he said in John 14 and 9, those who have seen me have seen the Father. Jesus came into the world to show the world his Father, to show people the nature of his Father, to show people exactly what his Father was like in order to be the visible image of that invisible God that no man has ever seen. In John 1 and 18, John records for us that no man has seen God at any time, but his only begotten Son, whom was, who was in his bosom, hath declared him. You know, that's what I believe Jesus is saying in John 14 and 9. Those who have seen me have seen the Father. I declare the Heavenly Father, the nature that you see in me. That's the nature of the Heavenly Father. The mercy and the compassion and the love that we see in Jesus. That's how merciful, compassionate, and how loving the Heavenly Father is. So Jesus came into the world to show us the Father in that sense, in order to communicate to us exactly what his Father was like. He came into the world, friends and brethren, to set an example for us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, Be an imitator of me as I am an imitator of Jesus, of Christ. Now Jesus, in setting the example for us, obviously had to come into the world exactly the way we are, exactly like one of us, because he simply could not have set the right example for us if he hadn't come into the world in the same sense that we're in the world, that you're in the world and I'm in the world. And I dropped my glasses and have to pick them up, so excuse me for that. But if Jesus had come into the world like uh, as a angel, if he'd come into the world as a king of kings, if he'd come into the world in a position of authority in which he would just have uh, ruled the world by force, well, how could we have imitated Jesus? How could we have followed after Jesus? How could we have emulated Jesus? Jesus came into the world exactly, friends and brethren, the way you came into the world and I came into the world. He was in his mother's womb for nine months. Now, he had no physical father. The Holy Spirit sired him. But he came into the world through his mother's womb. He could have come into the world a full-grown creature. He could have come into the world any way that he chose to come into the world. He could have come into the world holding any position that he chose to hold. But he came into the world 
through his mother's womb the way you came into the world, the way I came into the world. He was born in a stable in Bethlehem among the livestock. He grew up in a home that Bible scholars tell us didn't even have floors in it. As a, an adult, during his ministry, he owned next to nothing. He was a poor man. He could relate to all people. If he would have come into the world any other way, how would he have been able to relate to all people? By coming into the world the way that he did, he relates to us all. He experiences all of the things that you experience and I experience. Hebrews 4 and 15, we have not a high priest who has not been touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but have tempted in all points, hath been tempted in all points, just as we, and yet was without sin. So Jesus came into the world to set an example for us that we might strive to be like him. He was without sin. Now, obviously... We're not going to be without sin. None of us human beings are capable of living above sin. There's not one that's righteous. No, not one. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But, friends and brethren, we are supposed to strive to the very best of our ability to be like Jesus. Jesus came into the world so that he could set the right example for us, experience everything that we experience, yet not sin, and cause us to try to emulate him, try to strive to be like him. Jesus came into the world, friends and brethren, in order to communicate with us more effectively. How could he communicate with us totally effectively only in his heavenly state? How could Jehovah God communicate with us totally effectively only in his heavenly state? I read a story here last week about a man that removed a huge boulder, and underneath that boulder there were thousands of ants that were scurrying to safety. And the man said to himself, I wish there was some way I could communicate unto these ants that I don't want to hurt them, that I'm not going to hurt them, but it just can't be done. How is a man going to communicate with an ant? Well, now, friends and brethren, if that man could have become an ant then he would have been able to communicate with those ants, would have been able to let them know that he had not come there to hurt them. Well, now, think of this. The difference between us human beings and God is a billion times greater, greater than the difference between a man and an ant. Well, how could God really and adequately communicate with us if his son hadn't become one of us? If he hadn't been manifested through his son? If his son hadn't declared him? Jesus came into the world so that he and his heavenly Father could communicate with us the way in, in a much more effective manner. But now all of this be as it may, and there's many, many reasons that Jesus came into the world, but all of them be as they may. The main reason, the most important reason, the reason above all other reasons, the ultimate reason for him coming into the world was to seek and to save the lost, to bear your sins and my sins in his body on the tree, to die for mankind. That's why God sent Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the reason that Jesus came into the world, to bear our iniquities, to be bruised for our iniquities, chastised for our peace, the chastisement of our peace be laid upon him, to be wounded for our transgressions, to pay the price for you and for me, to die for you and for me. Friends and brethren, hear this and understand this now. Jesus did not come into the world to heal us of our physical illnesses. He healed people of their physical illnesses in order to prove that he was whom he claimed to be. But that was a byproduct of his mission. And those healings were done only to prove to people that he was the Son of God. Only to confirm the word. Jesus did not come into the world to feed the poor. 
He said that you have the poor with you always. Jesus did not come into the world so that his followers could necessarily be more successful on this earth. Jesus did not come into the world so that we might have a better image of ourselves or so that we might like ourselves more or so that we might be successful in this life. He came into the world, friends and brethren, to die for us so that through that vicarious death on Calvary's cross, we, through our believing, confessing, repenting of our sins and being baptized into him for the mission of our sins, could appropriate his blood to our lives. And that precious blood that he shed on Calvary's cross could redeem us from our sins. That's why Paul said in Romans 6, 3 and 4, Know ye not as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. Because his death, friends and brethren, is where he shed his blood. That's what he came into the world to do, to shed his blood, to redeem all of mankind. There's the greatest miracle that God ever performed. But now, to get back to the uh, ninth verse. That was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus Christ came into the world as the true light. Now, we read about a lot of lesser lights in God's holy and inspired word. We read about uh, Moses. He was certainly a light of God in the sense that he led the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. We read about David. He was a light from God. He certainly, through David, we learn about God's forgiving nature and how much God is willing to forgive and how much God loves you and me. Certainly through many of those Old Testament prophets, through Daniel, certainly he was a light from God. He refused to follow the king's decree. He continued to pray when they made it illegal to pray, and he wound up in the lion's den because of it. God was with him, though. Certainly Joseph was a light sent from God, no matter what condition he was in, no matter how he was mistreated. He always lived in such a manner as to glorify the Heavenly Father, and he eventually was rewarded, but certainly he was a light sent from God, a light of God. John the Baptist was a light of God. He paved the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul was a light of God, one of the great Christians of Christians of all time, a great gospel preacher. Peter, all kinds of New Testament and Old Testament personalities were lights from God. And there's people in, watching in this television audience who are lights for God. And so many people, every person who lives for the Lord is a light for the Lord. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5 and 16, let your light shine before men so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We're all lights for the Lord. Every child of God, every one of us lights our little candle. And that candle penetrates the darkness, certainly goes deep into the darkness. But you see, friends and brethren, there's only one true light that can envelop the darkness. Only one true light that over, can overcome the darkness. Only one true light that can lead mankind out of darkness under his marvelous light. In the, on the Damascus Road, when Jesus knocked Saul of Tarsus down, he said to him that he was going to make a minister of him, that he might send them unto the Gentiles so that he could lead them out of darkness into his light. So friends and brethren, he is the great, great light. You know, our son... S-U-N, sits out there some 93 mi million miles from the earth, some 860,000 uh, miles in diameter, tremendous size, and out there 93 million miles from the earth, and it's through its rays, the rays that emanate from the sun that we live on this planet. Now, you've got the moon that's just out there 238,000 miles from the earth, just an uh, infinitesimal distance compared to how far the sun is from the earth, much smaller than the sun. 
but the moon reflects the sun's rays and guides us by night. Well, now, friends of brethren, in a sense, that's what all of the lesser lights who follow after the Lord do. We reflect the Lord. And certainly, if our lives are right, people see the Lord in us. And we're lights for God, lights for Jesus Christ. But no one is the light in the sense that Jesus was the light. The true light that overcame darkness, that overcame sin, that overcame death. And through his overcoming of sin, and through his overcoming of death, paved the way for you to overcome sin, for me to overcome sin, for you to overcome death, and for me to overcome death. We overcome that sin through him. We're resurrected because of him. So he was the great and true light. But now some of the saddest words in all of the Bible, and read them to you rather than quote them, so you know they come from God's holy and inspired word. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Here he came into the world that he made. Here he came into the world that he was a creator of. Here he came into the world that he was the behind, that he was the designer of, if you will. And the world rejected him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. We've often applied that scripture to the Jewish race, that he came into the world as a Jew, and the Jewish people rejected him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Well, certainly there's truth to that understanding of John uh, 1, verses 10 and 11. But I think it has a lot broader meaning than that. I believe what John is saying there is he came into the world as a human being. He came unto his own, became just like us. And the world, human beings, rejected him. Very few people, friends and brethren, have accepted Christ compared to the many that have rejected him. He came unto his own. He came into the world just like you and me. And his own received him not. His own rejected him. His own spurned him. There, friends and brethren, is the greatest tragedy known to mankind. There is the tragedy to compound all of tragedies. Here is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the second person in the Godhead, the creator of the universe, who comes into the world, becomes a little lower than the angels, becomes just like you and me, to die so that we could live in his own, his own people. Those that he became just like spurn him, reject him, refuse to be obedient unto him. Now, isn't that tragic, friends and brethren? Isn't that sad? But then the 12th verse. Under those who received him gave he them power to become sons of God. Now, hear what he says. He didn't say they became sons of God when they received him, but he gave them the power to become sons of God. How? By believing that he was the son of God and is a son of God, by repenting of our sins, by confessing them before men and by being baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins. That's how, friends and brethren, he became, gave us the power to become sons of God. You can be a follower of Jesus Christ. You can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can be a member of the church that we read about in the New Testament. You can live with the greatest hope known to mankind. All you have to do is not reject the light that came into this world to redeem you and me. All you have to do is turn to the Son of God as a free moral agent. Be obedient unto Him. Obey Him in baptism so that you can appropriate His blood to your life. And then you'll take on the greatest hope known to mankind. The hope that comes with being a Christian. The hope that comes with being a follower of our Lord. Why, friends and brethren? 
Why would anyone reject that hope? Why would anyone reject Jesus Christ? Why would anyone reject the light that you come into the world? Now, you're in one of two conditions, friends and brethren. Either you're among those who have rejected the Lord, friends, I should say, or you're among those who have accepted the Lord, have taken the power he gave us and have become sons of God. I hope and pray that you're among the latter. And if not, believe that he's a son of God, repent of your sins, and obey him today in baptism. Thank you so very, very much for watching this program. May God bless each and every one of you. We love all of you very, very much. And our sole desire is that all of us can go to heaven and be with the God who created us and the Christ who died for us. Thank you so much for watching.